Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. Brethren, this is God's holy word. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. The title of this evening's message is Ordained Unto Good Works, taken from verse 10. One of the vexing problems of the Christian life regards the issue of good works. Errors regarding the place of works in the life of the believer most often come from faulty views of salvation. Errors regarding the place of works most often come from faulty views of salvation. On the one hand, there are those who believe that their works Merit salvation. Now these are of two sorts. The first sort believe they are right with God because of the things they do. They believe that their works will gain them favor with God and that He will receive them on the grounds of a job well done. The Jews fell into this error as do many others, even in our day. All the pagan religions believe that men are right with God by what they do. If there is a salvation to be had, it is secured by my good works, by my adherence to whatever the system of my so-called God is. The world is filled with millions who believe this way. And it is tragic that the Jews themselves... Many of them believe this in our day. If you ask why their God should receive them into heaven, they will tell you that they have been good persons. I've heard, I've heard people say that. Why should God receive you into heaven? Well, I've been a pretty good fellow. Unfortunately, Though this should not surprise us when we talk about Hinduism or Buddhism or the Muslim faith, there are people that profess to be Christians that will tell you, well, I, sh I shouldn't go to hell because I'm not that bad. It's the same kind of thinking. They've put Jesus in their religion but they don't have the gospel. They think that their works save them. They will say, well, you know, I, I do my best. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Or I've even had people say this. Well, I do all I can just to live by the Sermon on the Mount. This is an eternally fatal error. And it is not the teaching of God's word regarding works. Now, the second sort of those who believe they merit their salvation are those who know that Christ and His work 
are the basis for their salvation, but they believe that their good works keep them saved. And you can talk to them and they'll say, Oh yes, Jesus is the Savior. But if you don't keep yourself holy enough, you can lose your salvation. So they believe that believing plus their good works will bring them to heaven. They believe that they are pardoned by faith in Christ, but that they must keep themselves holy enough to stay saved. This is a grave error, and it is not the teaching of God's Word regarding works. Now, on the other hand, there are those who recognize that they're saved by grace alone through faith alone, and that their works neither save them nor keep them. Now, these are of two sorts as well. The first sort believes that salvation is an instantaneous event that, be that begins because they've made a decision. Now, this is usually tied to the modern notion referred to as once saved, always saved. Now, don't jump to any hasty conclusion. I believe that once someone is in fact the regenerate child of God, he always will be. But the modern concept of once saved, always saved is generally very flawed because, as I said, there's a very weak view at best of what salvation is. These believe that they are right with God because they let God save them. And now because they let God save them, He's obligated to keep them. Now, this way of thinking often produces very careless, worldly lives. You see them? There's very little practical holiness if there is any at all. There might be some regular church going. But if you ask them why they were saved, they will tell you what they have done. Why are you a Christian? Why will you be in heaven? Well, back in Acts 6, I made my decision. I, I let God save me, and then a little later on, I let Him be my Lord. Who's the operative principle there? Man. And when you have let God save you, and when you let Him be the Lord, you pretty much can live like you want, can't you? But He's still obligated to save us. And that's the way people often think in our day. Now, brethren, I don't make this stuff up. This is a very grave error, and it is not the teaching of God's Word regarding works. The second sort of this group also profess that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that their works neither save them nor keep them. But they fall into the error on the other side of thinking that words like responsibility, law, obey, and works conjure up the specter of legalism. If you tell them that we must obey the Lord, well, that's legalism. If we tell them there are warnings in the Scriptures toward those who profess to be Christians, they shout, Phariseeism! Legalism! This sort usually thinks that the only law in the life of the believer is faith in Christ and, quote, the leadership of the Spirit. Now, we believe in salvation by faith. We believe in the leadership of the Spirit. 
But very often, if you watch the lives of these who profess this, this leadership of the Spirit often appears simply to be their preferences. They bristle with indignation when they are pressed regarding the responsibility of believers to obey the Word of God. This is a grave error. And it is not the teaching of God's Word regarding works. Now I trust, at least by some of the responses I see in some of your faces and some of the nodding heads, you're familiar with at least one or perhaps more of the categories I've set before you here. Now I'm not saying this is exhaustive, but this, I think, fairly covers in a broad spectrum uh, some of the, er the errors that we find out there, the, the broad categories. So let me unfold a little about this issue of good works this evening under these three heads, God willing. Number one, I want to begin with the impossibility of our good works. The impossibility of our good works. Secondly, I want to talk about the source of our good works. And thirdly, I want to talk about the certainty of our good works. Now, if you're, if you're getting a little bleary because it's getting late, you may have missed what sounds like a contradiction in there. Or if you're right there with me, you might have said, what does he mean by impossibility and then the certainty? I do want to explain myself. What I mean by the impossibility of our good works is this. Lost sinners cannot satisfy the just and holy God by their works. Lost sinners can never perfectly satisfy the just demands of a holy and almighty God and His law. Why is that? It's right here in the passage. Verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. It is impossible for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins to produce works that will satisfy a holy and just God. They cannot merit the mercies of God in a lost, dead, rebellious frame of mind. It's impossible. It can't happen. Secondly, verse 2, wherein in time past we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The impossibility of our good works is also due to the fact that we are slaves to Satan. Now, this is a hard one for the lost man to swallow. He doesn't think in his natural state that he has any boss but himself. But friend, that is Satan's lie. That's what he told man in the garden. That's how he seduced Eve. Ye shall be as gods. And even though every one of us knows that we answer to somebody somewhere, we'll even deceive ourselves into thinking nobody tells me what to do. And then when someone comes along, then we close our eyes, do what they tell us to do, but inside, in our hearts, we stand in rebellion against them. It's like the story I, you may have heard of the little girl who was standing with her father and mother in the church service. And when it was time for the congregation to sit down, the little girl remained standing. The father said, sit down. She said, I won't. He said, sit down. It's time for us to sit down. She said, I don't want to. He finally, in exasperation, took her by the little arms, pulled her down into the pew next to him. And she looked up at him and said, Okay, I'm still standing in my heart. Now, this is the way we are by nature. Even when someone says, You must do this, 
we at least take the satisfaction of saying, well, I'm still standing in my heart. Brethren, this is enslavement to Satan. It is deception because we are either under the lordship of Christ or we are slaves of the enemy. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We are enslaved by Satan. Listen to the way he says it. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Why do you think in your proud and rebellious heart that you're the Lord of your own life? Because the spirit of darkness has lied to you and you believe it. And you are a child of disobedience. It is impossible for those who are the children of disobedience to do works that will satisfy God. But we'll try. We'll read our Bible a little more. We'll go to church a little more often. We'll pray a little more intensely. Oh, Lord, receive me today because I've done this this and this. But those works are impossible. Good works are impossible for those that are still outside of Christ. Thirdly, verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Brethren, here it is once again. We are under the condemnation of God's wrath. Notice he says, we all had our conversation in times past. This is not a statement to run past. Who's saying this? The Apostle Paul. Who was he? A man of such extraordinary religious fervor that he was instrumental in hauling men and women out of their homes to be prosecuted in the courts of the day and even put to death. A religious zealot that could say, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And how does he define himself? We all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh. Brethren, religion without Christ is one of the lusts of the flesh. We are inherently religious creatures because we were made in the image of God. And without Christ, without the life that is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. We're still religious. We might be fervent. It might even be religion in the name of Christ. But we're under the condemnation of God. Amen. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's all the lost man can live for. When you are cut off from God, all you can live for is my stuff. You have no other life. That's why people sometimes just cleave either to a relationship or cleave to their things. I've got to have this, I've got to have this. Oh, I don't want to leave that. I've, I've got to have that thing. It's my stuff. It's my life. It strokes me. Makes me happy. It's the only thing that gives me meaning in this old nasty world. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, the lost man lives 
for what he thinks is right, for what makes him feel good. And if that's sitting on the front row of First Baptist Church, you can do that and still go straight to hell. Oh, yes, I love to sing these nice songs. Oh, I like to be around these nice people. And that makes me feel good, so I hang out with them. Brethren, many of our churches are filled with people like that. They have some kind of foggy... Uh, how can I say it? Unformed idea about someone named Jesus who, who loved all of us and died and, and somehow or another, if we, we believe that, everything's okay. Foggy. I asked a man who was going to counsel some young people once. Sat down with him and he was excited that he was going to be a camp counselor. And knowing something about him, I was a little concerned about this. And I said, well, now, let me ask you. If someone comes knocking at your door 10 o'clock at night and says to you, Oh, brother so-and-so, I'm under the conviction of God. I know that's what it is. I see myself as a sinner. I heard the preaching tonight and I'm pierced. I, I want to be right with God. What do I do? I said, what are you going to say to that person? And he looked at me like I had just spoken in a foreign language. And of course, I suppose in a real sense I had. In his religion, that was a a strange scenario. Why? Because in many church camps, youth or adults, you don't hear about sinners that are worthy of God's eternal damnation. You just hear that they should smile because God loves you. If you have a problem, come to the great problem solver. He looked at me for a minute and he said, Well, I, what do you mean? I said, what would you tell them if they were constrained of heart to cry out to God and were looking for something to, so they, they would know they would be right with the Almighty? I was trying not to put words in his mouth. He finally said, oh, oh uh, I'd tell him God loves him. And I'd say, are you sure? Is that what you tell him? And I could see the look in his face. Uh-oh, wrong answer. But he was bewildered. This was a counselor. And he said, well, I'd tell him Jesus, Jesus died for him. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean by that? And he changed the subject. Now, brethren... I know that there are many places where things are not that unclear. But when you consider that this was someone who was supposedly chosen by a church to be, quote, a counselor, that we're living in a desperate day. People need to hear that they are under the wrath of God so that they might flee to the mercy and grace of that God in Christ. Paul tells us, among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle, our behavior and time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, by the nature of what I am, what you are outside of Christ, we merit nothing but God's just anger. Psalm 7 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. We're dead in our sins. We're slaves of Satan. And we're condemned under God's wrath. We cannot... By those natures. I mean that nature, 
that wicked fleshly nature that lives for itself do anything that would merit the mercy and the favor of God. So in that sense, I mean that man outside of Christ finds himself in an, in an impossible situation. He cannot produce perfect righteousness, which is what God requires. Well, that's what I mean by the impossibility of our good works. So secondly, let's consider then the source of good works. If anyone ever does what the Bible calls good works, how is that possible in light of what we've just read? Well, beginning in verse 4. But God, if you've never heard Dr. Lloyd-Jones' wonderful sermon, But God, you need to get that and listen to it over and over. He says, here, Paul introduces the gospel in these two words. But God, we are slaves of our sin, slaves of Satan, under the just condemnation of God, but God, who is rich in mercy. There it is. God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. It is absolutely vital that we understand that salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, look! at the horrifying condition that men are in. And yet God in His infinite love, His infinite mercy, purposed before the foundation of the world a salvation so great, so glorious, so complete, that it involves the very imparting of life to the spiritually dead. It's not simply a philosophy that floats in their minds. It is union with Almighty God. Verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together. This is that glorious work of regeneration, that miraculous work of God, wherein we, dead sinners, trespassers against God, slaves of Satan, and justly condemned, are brought into union by the miraculous power of the Holy Ghost and regeneration. He puts in parenthesis, what I'm saying to you here is, by grace ye are saved. Men will never work up, quote, saving faith in themselves. They will never by their own power follow after the Most High God. God who is rich in mercy has quickened us together with Christ and raised us up together that we might sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Brethren, I could do a whole message just on this one subject. But what we're saying is that God's glorious saving work is His very life illuminating the wicked heart, bringing light and gracious power to make us alive from the dead so that we will repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace ye are saved. The grace of God in saving us is not simply that God did something He didn't have to. That's the way it works out in just about any, quote, Bible-believing church today, close quote. The thing is, it's not simply that God did something that He didn't have to. It's that He comes to hell-deserving sinners by His great power and makes them alive. That's grace. So now, if that's the source of our good works, let's then finally consider the certainty of our good works. I said at the beginning, 
the impossibility of our good works. And that is what is clear throughout all of Scripture. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In our natural condition, we can never satisfy the just demands of God. But God in His mercy comes to us in His great power and works a miracle of life. And because of that, dear friend, the good works that were impossible to us before are not only possible now in Christ, they are certain. Number one, under this thought, our good works are God's sovereign purpose. Our good works will be certain because this is what God ordained. Look at verse 10. For we, the elect of God, believers, for we are His workmanship. That is a glorious verse. God comes to us. We who cannot do in and of ourselves that which satisfies Him. And He comes and brings life to our hearts by the power of the Holy Ghost. Brings us into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're alive because of Him. We're His workmanship. We can't work it up. We cannot make it happen. But He not only can, brethren, He does and He will in all of His children. Amen. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. That's what the new birth is. It is the new creation that God in His glorious power brings to our hearts. We're going to be made like Jesus Christ. And our lives will manifest this day by day. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. When? Well, when I let God be my Lord. No. It's hard to believe that people that say those kinds of things actually read the Word of God. I do not say that in a mocking way. I say that with grief of heart. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. I see people all the time that say they believe that God has saved them by their grace, and yet their lives say nothing of denying ungodliness. They've just found a way to call their ungodliness liberty. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Friend, if you are not actively being instructed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, to cast off, to reject, to deny ungodliness as defined by God's Word and worldly lusts as defined by God's Word, it's not the grace of God. He says, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. And we're not going to be perfect, brethren. That's not going to happen in this life. But brethren, there is by the power of the Holy Ghost, there is by our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, there is by that miraculous work of regeneration where life fills us, we have a new heart and we desire the things of God and walk with Him as new creatures, there is a movement in our hearts, a growth, an increase in our hearts to live soberly. That means in self-control. Righteously, according to the Word of God. And godly in this present world. Now, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. Why? So that now we can go on living like the world, but being certain that we're going to heaven. Because we did something. We cast our vote for Jesus. That's not what it says. 
it says plainly, looking for the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people. What does it say there? Look. Zealous of good works. I suggest to you, brethren, that the Scriptures do not set before us a Christ that fails. And so I say that the grace of God makes some people on fire to do His Word. That's what it says. Zealous. Overflowing. Bubbling over. To do good works. Brethren, if that's not so of us, it's not the grace of God. Do you see it? I, you don't even need a commentary to read this one. <laughs> it's right here. But the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust we should live soberly, righteously, and godly now, because He's purifying unto Himself a peculiar people. He's doing it. He's not trying. Amen. He's doing it. Amen. There is a glorious, triumphant Savior in the pages of this book. And He saves men and He is making them like Him now. Praise the Lord. Amen. Brethren, our good works are the sovereign purpose of God. If there is not a desire in you, even if some days it's only a little flicker, and it's like that some days. But the smoking flax, he won't quench. There will be that fire to serve our God. To walk in His ways because we love Him. Not because the preacher gets up and beats us with the Bible bat, makes us do it, but because we know who He is and we're walking in what He's done. He's made us alive. Our good works are an expression of God's good work. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, Paul says about the Philippians, being confident of this very thing. You're such wonderful Christians, I know that you'll just hang in there and do everything that's right because you're such wonderful people. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, being confident of this, that he, that he, that He which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Brethren, we are His workmanship. Amen. It is His sovereign purpose from before the foundation of the world to take a bunch of God-hating rebels and make them like His glorious Son. He gives them life. He fills them with His Spirit. He does a good work in them and gives them a heart to love Jesus Christ in His Word. Brother, that's the Bible I'm reading. Our good works are the requirement of our Heavenly Father. Now, ooh, now there's some folks that love grace. Boy, they hate words like require and obey. I've... I've said before, I have thought many times over my life as a believer to do a series of messages on the Christian four-letter words. One of them being obey. Boy, in some, in some believer's book, that's, that's a nasty word. I've heard preachers get up and say, trust and obey that hymn. That is legalism. But dear brethren, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, unto what end? That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The Lord calls us to obey Him and to be fruitful in walking with Him. Now, I'm not denying that it is all because of God at work in our hearts. I'm not denying that for a moment. 
what I'm saying to you is that he does work in his people and they desire to do the things that he calls them to do. Our good works glorify our heavenly Father. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says, From the lips of our Lord Jesus, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God which is in heaven. That's one of the reasons God's doing those works in his children. Not to show them off as, oh look, we were just so bad and now we're mighty fine. Why does he, why does he do that work within us? So that his dear children display the magnitude of his loving and saving grace. That he would take weak vessels like you and me, dead in our trespasses and sins, and enslave the Satan. And bring us alive, make us alive in Christ to do what he's called us to do. Our good works must be shaped by Scripture. I've heard people say, what do you mean by good works? I mean whatever God calls us to do in His revelation. We're not here to talk about what we think are good works. We're here to do what our God has told us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that means mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. His book prepares us to do those good works that he's ordained before the foundation of the world. Now, if you're not spending time feasting on Philippians and Romans and Matthew and Ezekiel, we're not going to know what God wants, will we? We'll have to go on someone else's convictions. Well, brethren, our good works are clearly evidence that we are God's children. Titus chapter 1 verse 16 says, They profess that they know God, but in works... They deny Him. That's sobering, brethren. They profess to know Him, but their lives point at them and say, they're liars. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians don't have days and moments where if you looked at us, you might not think, "Uh uh-oh, He couldn't be a Christian. But dear brethren, one of the greatest works that the believer ever does is repentance. When he fails, when she fails, with his tongue, with her attitude, with her deeds, we repent. That's a mighty good work, brethren. Our good works must be maintained. Titus chapter 3, verse 8 says, This is a faithful saying, that, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly. Constantly. This is what Paul is telling this young elder. Constantly. Drill it in. That they be careful to maintain good works. Who? They. Well, how can you tell Christians to do that and it not be legalism? Because these commands are directed to what we are in Christ. And what He has made us by His grace. Philippians chapter 2 couldn't be any plainer. Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved, in verse 12, As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. That's the opposite of the world. (laughs) We only obey when the boss is watching, right? What you really are, friend, is what you are and what you do when no one's around watching. We can put on a religious suit pretty fast. But what he says right here is that, now, not only did you obey when I was there, much more you obey even when I'm gone. How is it that such a thing could be be happening? 
Then he makes one of these amazing commandments. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? So that you can keep your salvation? No. It says, For it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. Friend, if we don't will and do his good pleasure, it doesn't mean that we're not earning salvation enough. It means he's absent. He works in his children. This is what the new heart is all about. This is what regeneration is all about. We're alive in Christ. He doesn't have to stand over us and beat us into submission. By His mercy, He loved us and saved us. By His grace, He rescued us. Brethren, He groaned in the garden on our behalf. Our sins drove Him to the cross. They nailed Him and hung Him in the air as His enemies mocked Him and hated Him. God raised Him from the dead on the third day and He's seated at the right hand ever loving and interceding for us. Brethren, if that doesn't capture your heart, I don't know what will. If that doesn't make your heart overflow with a love that says, Lord, what would you have me to do? Something's wrong. It's God that works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And that willing and doing is coming to Him, trusting His Holy Son, walking by faith in Him, walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, reading His Word to be informed in what He's called us to do, and then granting everything that pertains to life and godliness. It's not legalism to tell someone who's got the ability to obey God, to obey because that's what their loving Father calls them to, for His glory and their well-being. Our good works are rooted, finally, my dear brethren, in Christ Jesus Himself. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21. I love this passage. I think it's a marvelous way to close any service. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, Make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, the, the commands of Scripture are aimed at the hearts of those who are alive in Christ. And they live out what they are. They're not trying to be Christians by their good works. They're doing good works because they are Christians. Alive in Christ, Christ working in their souls so that they love His Word. Love Christ Jesus. They love His churches, people. They love His Word. Christ does this, working in us that which is well-pleasing in His sight, to whom be glory forever and ever. Well, on the basis of what we've seen in God's Word this evening, brethren, we can conclude this. One, we're not saved by our works. We are not kept by our works. But if we don't manifest good works, we're not saved. Because the works merit something for us? No. Because the works keep us holy enough? Never. but because the absence of good works, a life in conformity with this word, means that God is absent from the soul. The purpose of regeneration and union with Christ, God's giving a new heart, is God's sovereign mercy. It's His sovereign grace that we might manifest His love and His glory. Our good works are not meritorious. 
Yet they are the fruit of God's Spirit and testify that we have been born of God and are in union with Christ. As Paul writes, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We've been ordained unto good works. May the Spirit of God show forth the outworking of His holy and eternal purpose as we walk in them. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.